Hello, this is David Bernstein. I'm founder of the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values. This is the SpeechCast, a joint venture of the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values and the Speech Project of the Jewish Journal. I'm honored to have uh, with us today, Elliot Abrams. Perhaps he needs no introduction. He is a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. He is uh, soon to be the chairman of the Tikva Fund, which is a storied project in the Jewish world that has educated and trained so many of the current thought leaders in the Jewish community. Um, he is a longtime foreign policy hand in very senior positions. Um, he, um, he also wrote a book called Faith or Fear years back on uh, Jewish continuity and the struggles of maintaining the Jewish people. Elliot, it's a uh, real uh, honor to have you. Thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thanks, David. I'm glad to, glad to be here with you. So um, we are at a striking ideological moment. Um, I don't know exactly how to characterize it. Um, the organization that I founded, Jewish Institute for Liberal Values, mostly concerns itself with uh, countering the imposition of what we call critical social justice ideology. Um, that's a phenomenon of the left. Um, I also would love to talk a little bit about what we're seeing on the right, and whether they're comparable in any way, or whether you're seeing very different phenomena. So why don't we start there? How would you characterize this current ideological moment? Um, in one word, <laughs> bad. <laughs> um, you know, I, I obviously it's the product of some long-term trends, uh, but also the product of the Trump years and the struggles during those years. From a Jewish point of view, I've been struck by an article that appeared uh, recently, uh, kind of mid-June, uh, in Tablet by Natan Sharansky, um, in which uh, I hope I'm not doing him injustice to say that the change that we're seeing is that, that um, you know, we, we, it used to be the case that people were saying, well, uh, Judaism means or includes tikkun olam. So uh, it includes uh, a form of universalism and says Sharansky, but now the universalists are saying, no, no, no. Um, if you're a true universalist, then you've got to, in a sense, exclude or destroy the Jewish identity. And he notes that there's a long history here going back a couple of centuries, but including forms of uh, Marxism and communism that said that the true Jewish identity would be to destroy um, Jewish um, uh, I, I guess you'd say community identity and solidarity in favor of, of larger ones. And we are in fact seeing that in lots of, for example, universities and even some newsrooms today, that any sense of Jewish solidarity, cohesion, identity is in fact backward, discriminatory, colonialist in mentality. That was not true 10 or 20 years ago. We really didn't see that. We saw the, the, the tikkun olam argument, but that was not an anti-Jewish argument. It was not an argument against Jewish solidarity. It was an argument that Jewish um, identity should lead you to uh, should lead you to support other forms of identity and cohesion, though they may not be your own. So what we're seeing today really is something new. It, in what ways does this ideology make 
Jewish solidarity an issue? What in the ideology itself would negate Jewish solidarity or identity? Well, uh, you know, I think it's establishing uh, a, a hierarchy of uh, history, hierarchy of guilt, hierarchy of crimes. And uh, what it is saying is that there are some, and of course, race would be the most significant one, um, that simply obliterates Jewish solidarity. In a sense, it's arguing you don't have a right to Jewish solidarity because the only um, identity that matters is racial identity. So you may think of yourself as a Jew who is or ought to be concerned with the Jewish community. That's a false identity. You're a privileged white. So knock it off with this Jewish stuff. It's unimportant. And in fact, to adhere to it is um, a form of aggression against non-whites because again, the only identity that matters is your white privileged identity. Yeah. Um, that's a very uh, significant change. And of course, for, um, for many Jews, Jewish college students, perhaps being in the, the vanguard here, uh, it's gonna be extremely troublesome. Hmm. You know, it's interesting, um, I, going back about five years ago, when I first actually uh, became the head of a Jewish organization, I wrote a piece about this phenomena that very few people outside perhaps colleges knew about, which was intersectionality. And yeah. it caused a bit of a firestorm at the time, because I, I worried that it could be used as a cudgel against Jewish interests and so forth. Um, but the interesting thing about intersectionality is it actually may have been a more benign strain of this ideology than we're currently seeing now, because at least under intersectionality, you could, groups could all claim solidarity around a common understanding of oppression. But in the current ideological environment, it seems it's increasingly the case that if unless you're set, what, what I've heard the phrase centering the black experience or centering black racism or blackness, then you are actually, you know, decentering blackness and therefore you are um, you're doing violence unto it. And that's actually quite at odds with the intersectional proposition. So I, I worry that that this is actually mutated into a much more egregious ideology than it might have even been five years ago. I think that's probably right. Although, of course, there are other um, what should we call them, valences here, one of which is gender. Um, and that is also, in a sense, being in some places weaponized. Um, so the old, you know, the, the, again, I use the example of college students in part because we were seeing so much of this on campuses. And part of the problem is administrators without backbone. And part of the problem is the faculties, but um, what a lot of um, Jewish kids, Jewish students are being told is your concern about Jewish issues. For example, your concern about the safety, the security of Israel is a colonialist mentality. Uh, and they're not equipped to, it's partly that they're not equipped to deal with the argument, but worse that when they try to engage in the argument, they are told, shut up. Um, and sometimes punished, sometimes excluded uh, from uh, collegiate life because of that 
identity of theirs. So I'm going to um, posit that Jewish organizations are now at this sort of very excruciating intersection strategically on this issue. Um, they can do what they've been doing, which is to say there's an ideology at place. We really don't have control over it. It's it's beyond our pay grade in a way. So what we're going to do is try to maximize Jewish interests within that ideology. We're going to try to make sure that Jews are treated as best as possible within that ideological framework. And you saw this play out at, during the debate over the ethnic studies program in California, when some Jewish groups like the JCRC of San Francisco, worked very hard to make sure that anti-Semitism was viewed as a form of, of oppression and that, um, and that Jews were present and visible and weren't erased, as was the case in earlier versions of the curriculum. And there's another camp that's saying this ideology is problematic, even if it does represent Jews in the here and now in a fair way or a semi-fair way, because it will inevitably, in its very nature, its binary nature, lead to anti-Semitism, fuel anti-Semitism. What is your take on that dilemma? Am I right that this is the sort of place where we're at? And what, what is your take on it? Yeah, I think, I think you're right. Um, you know, what it does it seems to me, is to negate or counteract or attempt to um, what I would call liberalism. Um, old fashioned, the old fashioned enlightenment view that used to characterize most of the major Jewish organizations. I think you're right that they don't quite know what to do now uh, because most of the major Jewish organizations, you know, traditionally have seen uh, uh, have seen enemies on the right, not the left. Um, and they're very uncomfortable about all of this. And they have not really wanted to take up the cudgels and fight. Uh, this is particularly true of ADL, which I think is going through a great crisis now about what it, what it stands for, what is the nature of anti-Semitism. Um, but I think it's true for a lot of rabbis, a lot of synagogues, you may have seen a statement I guess it was, I guess it was in May by a couple of hundred rabbinical students, yes. um, which was really quite striking to me because it certainly didn't represent um, the views that most of their future congregants um, have, even if those congregants are a little bit afraid to, to speak about it. Um, the, the American Jewish experience, I think, is an experience in which what it was possible for Jews and for the great organizations to do was to say um, the fundamental American ideals are the Enlightenment liberal ideals, and we Jews are protected by them. Um, and uh, it's a huge change if we're no longer protected by the prevailing uh, thinking uh, of American society. Now, we're not there in the sense that I don't think um, many Americans at all have, if you will, moved on from those uh, liberal ideals. But um, what you don't see, I think, is, as you said a minute ago, what you don't see is uh, the Jewish community in an organized fashion being willing to engage in that struggle. Mm. Yes. 
so let's let's talk about the right for a second. Um, you know, I've been criticized. My organization's been criticized for focusing too much on the left, even though we would argue that the left in many cases is in our own backyard. And we're trying to make sure that it uh, doesn't become completely corrupted by um, an ideology that is inimical to Jewish values and to liberalism, as you said. Um, but um, but, you know, there is there is an issue on the right. And, and the question is, is it the same kind of issue? Is there a challenge to liberalism on the right? Is it an ideological challenge or is it something entirely different? And should we fight it in the same way? Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm not sure of the answer to that. I mean, clearly there are at the fringes on the right. Uh, what can we call them? white identity groups that identify nativist groups that identify um, uh, basically white Protestant America as the only real America and see anything else, including black and Hispanic Americans, Jewish Americans, uh, as alien to that white uh, nativism. Um, frankly, I I'm less worried about that because uh, where do they have influence? Do they have influence in American universities? None. Do they have influence in the mass media? <clears throat> Pardon me. None. Where do they have influence? Um, I don't think they have great influence in uh, the Republican Party. Uh, so I'm not um, worried about their impact in the short run or in the medium run uh, on American culture. Are, where are they writing the textbooks that your kids are going to use in school? They're not. Where are they writing the history books that are going to be picked up and assigned in colleges? They're not. Are they taking over, uh, we just saw recently, the Southern Baptist, Baptist Convention? They're not. So um, I'm, I'm uh, as, you know, I'm disgusted by these views, of course, which I think are uh, really alien to the United States and to American uh, beliefs. Uh, but I think they're less likely to have deep uh, cultural and political impact. Mm. You know, it's interesting. And, and let me I say one other, yeah. one other thing about that for Jews. Um, it seems to me that uh, American Jews should be fighting where we can successfully fight. Mm. Those are not the fields in where in which we're going to be able to fight. Where are, what are the fields? The Democratic Party, um, the great universities, Jewish organizations, the national Jewish organizations, um, the mass media, Silicon Valley. I think we have a greater chance of uh, having a beneficial impact in those places than we are in some of those places on the right. Right. Ironically, it's your own backyard where you're more likely to have a difference than you are um, in somebody else's. I, I, I agreed with just about everything you said, except um, the Republican Party, where, you know, you could argue that 70 percent of Republicans said that they think the election was stolen. I don't know if that's the exact figure, but I've, I've heard it recently. You know, there I'm, I'm, I'm less sure that 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 that's not as dangerous as the institutional capture that you're talking about um, on the left. But you may you may be right. Um, I have a more optimistic view and time is going to tell whether it's right or wrong. I think the Trump phenomenon is a passing phenomenon. Um, it doesn't mean that it didn't leave behind uh, things like January 6th, um, but 
uh, I'm hopeful that, I mean, if, if, you know, look at, for example, the Senate, you look at the Senate, look at Republicans in the Senate, you don't see any of this um, extreme view, I think. Um, so I'm hopeful that uh, we'll see in the 2022 cycle and certainly the 2024 uh, presidential cycle, uh, a Republican party that is more uh, traditional um, and uh, does not uh, reflect or feed any of that kind of extremism. So when I go back to my um, early days working in the Jewish world, and um, it was basically divided by sort of classical traditional liberals and neocons. Um, perhaps the neocons were a smaller percentage. Um, I worked at the American Jewish Committee, and it was almost a microcosm of that larger ideological battle where you had Commentary Magazine, of course, and you had most of the rest of the organization that was working on sort of a traditional liberal uh civil libertarian style agenda, pro-immigration, pro-church state separation and the like. It seems that that divide has sort of broken down and at least very one prominent Israeli commentator who I will not name because he did not give me permission to use his words <laughs> in this way, um, said, you know, maybe there is a new coalition that might be emerging between sort of center-right old-style neocons and sort of center-left old-style liberals who want to, both of whom have a mutual interest and a mutual belief in sustaining liberalism. What's your, what, do, do you think that's right? Well, I do think it's right, but I think uh, if we're gonna win, it's gonna have to be broader than that. Um, what that coalition you're suggesting really is, uh, what can I call it? The old liberal coalition in the Jewish community. Um, you can, you know, the, the sort of neocon split was a split really of the 70s and 80s. Mm -hmm. But let's go back before that, when the Jewish community had a fairly united view. Um, but I think, you know, what we need, um, we need, um, for one thing, we need people of, uh, I'll call it people of faith. We need Catholics and Muslims and, and Protestants to join the Jewish community uh, in protecting, again, what I'd call traditional American liberal views, including of the place of religion in American life. Um, because in my view, what you see in, for example, the famous Supreme Court Baker's cases is uh, people trying to say that, well, religion is something you do depending on your religion on Friday or Saturday or Sunday in a house of worship, period. And, and uh, the the, the uh, ex religious expression uh, should take place there in your house of worship. Um, I think we need a pretty broad coalition, liberal coalition, uh, and and it should certainly include the vast. I hope the vast majority of American Jews, um, and that would be religious and irreligious, and it would obviously be all the denominations, but. You know, it's not going to be a wall-to-wall -wall coalition because we see a fair number of Jews who are supportive of the, what are we going to call it, identitarian, uh, intersectional um, uh, movement. Right. So it's interesting. I, I'm very much part of this new emerging 
field of standing up for liberalism. And I've gotten to know the cast of characters. And what you're seeing in some sense is a new coalition, and I'm not talking about the Jewish community here, of people who used to be actually on opposite sides of each other. There are uh, religious voices and some of the new atheists who decided to part ways with that group. So uh, you're, a lot of this is secular humanists, people like Sam Harris, um, Peter Bogosian, um, Richard Dawkins, that group, the new atheist group, have joined forces with people like Neil Shenvey, for example, who's a evangelical thinker, one, probably one of the most knowledgeable people in the world on these ideologies and the theoretical roots and so forth. And so I'm wondering what to make of that. Is that, I mean, you know, it, 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 there is a religious version of this that says religion and liberalism go together and we should preserve both. And there's a there's a, se a fiercely secular version of it that says that liberalism is the protector of free expression of ideas in society and we must defend it. You know, it's funny because these are very old questions, right? Um, there's a wonderful remark by the late uh, great American sociologist Nathan Glazer about the arguments of the 1960s. Uh, Glazer had been in the arguments with communists in the 1930s, and he made the comment in the late 60s um, about uh, the student radicals. Um, their questions were so old, I had forgotten the answers. Well, some of the questions that, that the groups you mentioned are raising uh, are so old that you know, they're in the Federalist Papers. I mean, these are, these are not new questions about, uh, because, because they're questions that derive from Enlightenment liberalism. They derive from the questions that the founders asked about what kind of society we're gonna build and what is the place of religion in that society. Uh, and obviously they separated church and state. They did not separate religion and society. Or to me, that's obvious. Um, and I think in your coalition, it's not surprising that you get secular liberals, old fashioned liberals, and you get um, people whose interest is uh, freedom of religious expression and actually freedom of expression more generally. I don't think that's surprising at all. It's the old dispensation we had in the United States. And I think the arguments being made now are really very uh, fundamental efforts to change the way American society sees not only race, but sees religion. Uh, we're gonna be in this fight for certainly another decade, but it's all hands on deck when it comes to preserving, uh, what can I call it, enlightened liberalism or the kind of liberalism that would have been familiar to Americans in the 18th century. Yes. And maybe perhaps we took it for granted. It was like the air that we breathed for so long that only now when it's coming under attack, we have to sort of redefine it and recommit ourselves to it. I think that's right. And, and again, as, as so often is the case, uh, college campuses are in the vanguard when it comes to testing what, are, what, is the, what are the limits of free speech um, and what are the limits of religious expression. Right. You know, it's interesting. I, I, I think this always was uh, a campus issue and it sort of escaped into the mainstream at some point. And uh, I, I just to give you an I can't give you the specific example. Um, but yesterday I was supposed to do one of these podcasts 
with a Jewish professional who had been in the Jewish advocacy world, the liberal side of the Jewish advocacy world. And um, he was going to talk about cancellation that he faced. He now works for a much more conservative organization and decided against coming on because a colleague of his was severely disciplined for saying that institutional racism doesn't exist. Um, and so I'm wondering if this is really confined to these traditionally left-wing spaces now. Um, you know, you see places, uh, you know, in the corporate world. I mean, obviously, this is rampant in the corporate world, so much so that, you know, sometimes very conservative CEOs don't even feel like they can stop it in their own companies anymore. So yeah. what, what do we make of that? Well, Pete, there is, uh, I think there are a lot of people who are afraid. We see this in newsrooms. Yes. Um, certainly. And we do see it in universities. And you're right that we see it in the corporate world. Now, you know, I think a lot of the corporate leaders, well, some of them, I think, are making what I call a narrow business decision. Look, um, it's probably better for the company to duck. So we'll make some statements that will ensure that we're not a target and that, and that we, uh, we protect our reputation. And maybe this blows over in a few years. I think I think there's a lot of that. It's not it's not very courageous, um, right. but you can see it from a business point of view. Um, I think a lot of them don't really approve of what uh, they're being asked to do or say, um, but they don't want to get in trouble. I think this is true right. of a lot of professors too. I think it is true of a lot of people in the mass media. Right. Uh, um, it, it's what I do think you see on the left and the right is. You do see some old, some old, I guess I call old liberals, old leftists, um, who are standing up for um, older views of freedom, freedom of association, freedom of expression. It is unfortunate that you're, we're not getting the kind of battle that we should be able to expect from the ACLU, which a generation ago would have been in the leadership role, um, but now has decided to do this politically. Uh, rather than on the principle of old-fashioned civil liberties, because that's what we're talking about here. Yeah, although some people would say, and I'd love your take on this, that you know the ACLU was primarily set up to fight against the government infringement on speech, and that's what civil, the idea of civil liberties are about. But in this current ideological moment, the, it mostly plays out in private institutions. I mean, there might, of course, you know, universities are uh, to a large extent government institutions, and there are legal ramifications at times. But these are, you know, private institutions. Um, trying to uh, give in to the masses or the mob or whatever we want to characterize it and say, uh, you can't say that here. Is, is, that, is, this a, is that a distinction worth making in this? It's a distinction worth making, uh, but it doesn't really answer uh, the charge against the ACLU because we're talking partly, as you say, about uh, institutions that are not 100% private in nature. We are also talking about the public square. We're talking about what it is possible to say, to believe even, uh, without being punished. So, uh, you know, I think once upon a time, the ACLU would, uh, would have taken a different stance. Um, I, I don't, yeah, it would be a lot worse if the government were imposing, uh, what should we call it, wokeness? Um, but uh, the government, has a role here. I, I'll just give one example. Um, 
there, the, under the Obama administration, some rules were imposed on universities about how they handle complaints uh, of sexual attacks. Yeah. Those rules were then changed in the Trump administration. And many of those rules, the ones that were changed, uh, were seen by law professors all over the country as being totally unfair right. to people who were accused of terrible crimes. Um, now we've gone back in the last few months to the Obama rules, which essentially offer no protection whatsoever to people who are accused of terrible crimes, of doing things that if they were guilty of them, would and should actually have an enormous and deep impact on their lives, not only on their academic careers, um, but there's now no protection again, or very little uh, for uh, people who are, who are defendants. Um, well, is that private? Well, it's in a university, but it's imposed largely by the government. Yeah. Uh, and in many cases, you're talking about state universities, which are not private. So I, I don't think the ACLU gets a pass on this. Yeah, it's interesting. I've written a piece very, very critical of the ACLU, and I've read a lot of pieces very critical of the ACLU about this and generally resonate to that. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I interviewed Nadine Strassen, the professor at New York Law School, very prominent critic of the current ideological moment that does not hold back at all about the imposition of wokeness or critical social justice, um, but she still remains on the board of the ACLU. She convinced me that there's still a civil war going on at the ACLU. That I, I think one side's winning and one side's losing, but there are some of the old guard continues to fight for freedom of speech. It's just uh, unfortunately no longer the dominant strain. Um, well, that's great. I mean, I'm glad, I'm seriously glad to know that <clears throat> she and, and others who are true to the old uh, principles of civil liberties are keeping keeping the torch high. Exactly. Um, so we are trying to figure out how to change the dynamic here. And I, my organization, the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values, is really aimed at looking internally in the Jewish community. We're also going to look at new strategies as a community relations, how to build ties with center left and center right groups that are that share an affinity and a belief in liberal liberalism, liberal values, and so forth. But for the time being, we really want to uh, try to change the dynamic in the Jewish community and wake some folks up. Um, and I feel like we're we are also facing a tough challenge. On the one hand, we can we can really hit this hard and use really robust rhetoric. Maybe that's what we've been doing. Someone accuse us of that, um, and try to get people who already agree with us to come out of the woodwork on this. And there's another there's another thought that says, don't do that. Just bring people together for constructive conversations, so you don't you don't. Um, threaten the moderates in the Jewish world who might be inclined to agree with you, but don't want to enter this sort of rhetorical, heated debate. What, what's your, do you have a take on that at all? How we should look at this current challenge? Strategically, what we should do about it? And I know you're ahead of, an, of a fund now that probably has some say over the matter. Well, <clears throat> the Tikva Fund uh, is in basically an educational institution. Um, that uh, we support uh, the Jewish Review of Books <clears throat> and Mosaic Magazine, which is a fantastic website. And we do a lot of educational activity, both for day school students and 
the great majority of Jewish students were non-day school students. I think the answer to your question is, um, somebody's got to fight this fight. Um, in every such fight, <clears throat> the fight, um, uh, for example, against radicalism in the 60s and 70s, somebody's got to lead it. Now, you remember, you mentioned Commentary Magazine, the American Jewish Committee. There came a time when the American Jewish Committee didn't really want to be involved in the fight as much as Commentary did. And Commentary had to become an independent magazine unaffiliated with the AJC. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> that was probably, you know, the right outcome. That is, the AJC wanted to do what it wanted to do and Commentary wanted to lead this fight. Somebody has to make the arguments. You're doing it. <clears throat> there are other Jewish organizations, <clears throat> pardon me, and non-Jewish organizations that are doing it among Protestants, among Catholics. Um, you see it in the, in the editorial pages of the Wall Street Journal. Um, you see it in a lot of websites. For those who are moderates, who are trying to make up their minds and don't want to get involved in the fight, somebody still has to put the argument to them so that their own views become clear, so that they vote whether it's voting in their synagogue or whether it's taking a position in the organizations of, of which they're members or it's voting on election day. Um, somebody has to make the general public argument about what is going on um, in the culture, in the society, and also in the Jewish community. And you know, if you ever wanted proof that somebody's gonna make these arguments better in the Jewish community, it's that thing we talked about a few minutes ago, where a couple of hundred rabbinical students, rabbinical students, whose life and career is supposed to be the Jewish community, come out with really quite amazing statements that are uh, that that deviate from what has been um, the way American Jews thought about their place in American culture and thought about America and thought about Israel for that matter. Um, so. Uh, you know, I, not everybody has to get involved in the fight. It never happens that way, right. but somebody has to. Well, that's a great note to end on. Thank you. I appreciate the uh, inspiration and uh, good luck on your new position at the Tikva Fund. Um, and I uh, look forward to continuing the conversation. Me too. Thank you, David. Thanks very much.